Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And several weeks ago, we started looking at the book of Matthew, which is the first of the four Gospels that we have recorded in what we call today the Bible, the book. And uh, Matthew was a a Jew and uh, wrote in Greek and was addressing most of his gospel to Jewish communities. And so he was writing a great deal of what he included in in the book of Matthew was due to the fact that uh, he was addressing Jews who were becoming what we would eventually be calling Christians. But we should always remember that the, the beginning of Christianity was only amongst Jews. Virtually, only amongst Jews. Although there was definitely a lot of people who were not Jews that were interested in what Jesus was talking about. And there's a reason why they were interested in what Jesus was talking about. In reading uh, recently, uh, I read, uh, as a matter of fact, early this morning, I read a a document on uh, the Roman Empire. And uh, it, it was about... Uh, you know, charity in the Roman Empire. And uh, it, it t- starts off talking about how charity was somewhat of a haphazard uh, practice in early Rome. And of course I was thinking of early Rome after they threw out the Tarquinian kings, but then later on as I'm reading down to the document, they're talking 700 BC, which was 200 years before the establishment of the Republic. And uh, when they're saying haphazard, they weren't saying that there was very little charity. They were just saying that there didn't seem to be any institutional structure to that charity. Well, in reality, there was an institutional structure to that charity. And uh, it was the institution of community, of tribes, of people within the tribes and clans and family and uh, and friends of family. Uh, The same as there was in almost any what we would call primitive cultures. Most primitive cultures were calling them primitive because... They don't have the sophistication of the city-state, the the you know codification of laws. They had laws, but they didn't have a codification of laws, and so we think of it as not sophisticated because we throw words like sophisticated or organized, etc. But they were very organized, which of course the Romans. When they finally attacked the Teutons, they discovered that the Teutons, with less men, were better organized than even the trained crack Roman centurions who, who came against them. And they defeated them to the man. They, they, they wiped them out. And they, their, their entire military was devastated and destroyed. And so, 
the reality is that you can be a very organized society and not be what we would call, say, a civil society. And I've mentioned in several broadcasts in the past, and we'll eventually go into this in a lot greater detail. I've been adding to uh, the article on the subject of cities and tents and the idea that uh, there, there are many phrases that we see in the Old Testament where it talks about the people going back to their tents and then people going back to their cities and then going back to their tents and there is something being told to us by the language because of the nature of the word city which also means terror, and this idea of a civil structure. In a civil structure of government, that we that when we say the word civil structure, this idea of a city, this civil structure, uh, there are a legal rules and regulations or statutes or doctrines or, or institutions that have made decisions already about what people can do and can't do. And so they have these lists of codified rules that you can't do this, and if you do this, this will happen, and if you do that, that will happen. And somebody has already made the choices in certain circumstances as to what they will do and what they will not do, what they will allow and what they will not allow. And that's the civil society. Now, if you go and read our article on Citizen, we show you that in early America, there were more than one definition of citizen. In early America, there was a citizen as a natural inhabitant of the land, and there was a citizen by virtue of the 14th Amendment. And they they make that distinction in the definition in Black's Law Dictionary between the two different citizens. The citizen as a natural inhabitant is not subject to the administration of government. And the citizen by virtue of the 14th Amendment, which is a federal amendment to the Constitution, that is subject to the administration of government. And that, that's a drastic change. Now, why I'm saying this is that eventually we'll get, and we have already, but we will uh, tie this into our study of Matthew, is that Paul was not subject to the administration of government because Paul was Romaeus. We have an article, was Paul a Roman citizen? When you read the translation of the Bible... They say that Paul was a Roman citizen. They're saying this because the text says that Paul was Romeos. Romeos was not a term referred to to identify a Roman citizen, a general Roman citizen, until years and years later in Byzantine, where they started referring to the average Roman citizen as Romeos. And this was already during the fall of the Roman Empire. And as the empire fell, all the citizens of Rome became Romeos. But originally the term didn't mean a citizen of Rome. We know this by the text of the Bible. 
that the head of the cohort had to pay a great sum for the status of Romeos. While any centurion was all automatically given Roman citizenship simply because he was a citizen. Uh, excuse me, simply because he was a member of the, uh, as a centurion. He was a soldier. He would be granted Roman citizenship. He wouldn't have to pay a great sum for this. Here the head of the cohort was considered Romeos, but he had to pay a great sum of money so that he was not subject to the administration of government. Early Americans in what we call the American Republic, who were not citizens of the United States because that really didn't exist yet, citizenship of the United States, you were citizens of the individual states, until the 14th Amendment, where now you could become a citizen by virtue of the 14th Amendment, and you would be subject to the administration of government. If you don't know this history of America, you don't understand the Constitution. You don't understand politics. You don't understand government. You don't understand the difference between a democracy and a republic. If you don't understand these differences, you're not going to understand Matthew. Because Matthew is writing about a time that there was a transition from being a republic to being an imperial power of Rome. And then another transition from being under the imperial power of Rome back to the Republic, which is what Jesus was doing. Because as the average citizen of Rome, or the citizen of the Roman Empire, which would mean like if you were a citizen of Judea, or you were a citizen of Ephesus, or you were a citizen of Corinth, or a citizen of Galatia, you were also under the courts of Rome. You you had this, you weren't necessarily Quirus, which was the citizenship of the Roman city-state, but you were under the authority of the Roman Empire to either a greater or lesser degree. Cilicia was a little bit different when Paul, Paul was born, and Paul was born to a father who was Romeos at the time, Paul was born, so then Paul was also Romeos. But if you don't understand these distinctions, you're not going to understand the Gospels. You're not going to understand what setting the captive free meant. What what, uh, saved by grace would mean to the people actually living on the ground at the time. What the word Son of God would mean. Jesus was, it was prophesied that Jesus would be called the Son of God. And if you don't know that Emperor Augustus, Emperor Tiberius, Emperor Caligula were also called the Son of God, you may not understand the the conflict between Christianity and Rome. Why was there a conflict between Christianity and Rome? Because there was guaranteed religious freedom in Rome by the Constitution. 
and by the laws of Rome. You could, you could be a member of any religion. And this is why, like King Herod started a temple for Jews and built the temple in Jerusalem, but he also started the temple of Roma for people who were not Jews and still wanted to be a part of a system of religion. But then you need to know the definition of the word religion. Religion was the pious performance of your duties to God and your fellow man. And the word pious, there in that definition, that's that's the definition just 200 years ago in America. The word pious comes from a word that has to do with a patrimonial obligation. A paternal obligation. The pious performance. Because going back to that 700 B.C., when there was charity in Rome, that the the author of that particular paper said was haphazard. It it really wasn't haphazard. (laughs) It it was it was intimate. It was a school of law. uh, Texas A and M University wrote ancient. Roman munificence and the development of the practice and law of charity. The law of charity. That is an interesting phrase itself. Moses said we were to love our neighbor as ourself. Jesus said we were to love our neighbor as ourself. The same word for love there we see in the New Testament is also the word for charity. It is translated charity in other places. So you are to take care of the needy of your society. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Even Christ when he was talking about his two commandments. Upon which all ten commandments, all law, hinges is these two commandments that we are to you know, he, he says this in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven, which we will eventually get to. But it's part, we have to look at the Gospel of Matthew in the context of the Gospel of, of Matthew. We have to look at the Gospel uh, in the context of the history of the time. What was going on? Jesus is talking about law. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And of course he's stating this to somebody who evidently was trying to trap him and said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And so Jesus is answering him and he's saying to love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy soul. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's what he's saying. Now, I know a lot of people who think they love God. And they love their neighbor. But their charity is haphazard. That it's not well organized. As a matter of fact, their families are dispersed. I, I heard a clip 
from an interview with Joe Rogan talking about the fact that evidently just before the fall of all civilizations uh, in history, and people have written books about this, uh, there is a sexual revolution during which time there is an obsession with gender and cross cross-gendering people. You know, men are acting like women and women are acting like men. And there is a confusion, a dysphoria about gender, the, the male and female roles. And, and this is the progression of this sexual revolution, it, it, which is where people are trying to find fulfillment in sexual activity. And, and of course, it leaves them empty. It leaves women empty. It leaves men empty. And then they explore farther into this and they pervert the natural use of sexuality and try to get more from sexuality than it was meant to give. Sexuality is really about creating the next generation. But what is really causing the decline and fall of that civilization is the form of charity that they become addicted to. They become accustomed to. This is what brings the sexual revolution. Because in a society dependent upon charity, you create social bonds, psychological social bonds between individuals, within families, between men and women, between families and families, between clans and clans, between communities and communities. And between nations and nations. Based on the form of charity that is functioning in that society. And of course the public religion of Rome was based on legal charity at the time of Christ. If we go back 700 years before Christ, we will find that there was no legal charity. And then there was, there was, but there was charity. People were helping one another. People were protecting one another. People were, uh, you know, taking care of one another because you have to do that in a tribe. Life is hard. Winters come, uh, food shortages, uh, injuries, If you're going to be a tribe, you have to care about the other tribal members, the other family members, the other clan members. And and this creates bonds in that society. But what happened was they, they moved into an era of the Tarquinian kings, which was rather short lived, lived in history. But they, they had somebody who gained central power. Now we can go back to our article on Sumer. Our, our article on the turtle dove goddess. Our article on Nimrod, a mighty provider instead of the Lord. The articles on Cain, who is the starter of the, the creator of the first city-state. Of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where Sodom, the sin of Sodom wasn't sodomy. Sodomy was a symptom of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was in a time of affluence. They did not strengthen the poor. It didn't say they didn't give to the poor. 
But the manner in which they gave to the poor weakened the poor. And the manner in which they gave to the poor was through legal charity. And legal charity can only be established basically through civil government. Because legal charity is that you compel members of your tribe, of your society to give and then somebody has the power to redistribute that which you give to the needy of society. And of course the early church was the government appointed by Jesus Christ. I'm taking the kingdom away from you. I'm appointing to my little flock a kingdom, a government. And we see right away in the beginning of that government they're rightly dividing bread from house to house. Now, people will just pass over that statement, but they don't really know what it means because they don't understand the context. When you got the baptism of Jesus Christ, you were cast out of the systems of social welfare, the social safety net set up in the temple of Jerusalem by Herod. The Pharisees had made that rule that you'd be cast out. Now, I don't know what would happen if you were in the temple of Roma. If that was your religion, and you went and got the baptism of Jesus Christ, would you be cast out of the temple of Roma too? I mean, that wasn't run by the Pharisees, and we don't seem to have any texts that say you were cast out. But you didn't need to be cast out. Because now you were in another temple. You were a member of another temple when you got the baptism of Jesus Christ. You weren't going to go to the men who exercised authority but called themselves benefactors in Jerusalem, which was the people who sat in the seat of Moses. You know, you were going to go to the apostles and to the 120 in the upper room. And you were going to look out amongst yourselves and find other men you trusted. And you were going to organize yourselves according to the way in which the early church was organized. And that would allow them to rightly divide the bread from house to house. So that just a hundred years later, Justin, the martyr, is writing to Antonius Pius saying, we have a meeting every week. And those of us who have, share with those that don't have enough. When did they have this meeting? They actually had it on Sunday. So they went to church on Sunday? No, they had already kept the Sabbath, because these are all Jews, you know. Most all Jews. They had already kept the Sabbath as their day of rest. But they met on Sunday, the first day of the week, To make sure that they redistributed the bread properly from house to house. So that none of the members of their temple made without hands did not starve. They they were doing this to make sure that they actually loved their neighbor as themselves. They cared about their neighbor as much as they cared about themselves. That's what they were doing. And they were doing it by the practice of pure religion, which is charity, not force. And 
That is what the early church was doing. And that's what we need to understand as we go through Matthew when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, uh, in our first uh, looking at chapter 1 of uh, Matthew, uh, we covered the idea of why it was so important, at least to Matthew, to mention this book of generations telling the bloodline of Jesus Christ. We know that in the the Bible they talk about uh, that, that people were fascinated with endless genealogies who is the son of so who in you know bloodline and and you know who's a real israelite who's a real jew who's who's this that or the other thing and we know that abraham was a man who walked by faith so there is some sort of unique importance to bloodline in fulfillment of certain prophecies but in reality if you're not walking by faith your bloodline isn't going to get you anything of of value. Uh, That you have to be someone who lives by faith, by hope, and by charity. And this was the conflict with Rome. And the conflict with the Pharisees. Pharisees weren't living by faith, hope, and charity. They had a Corbin, a system of sacrifice, that took care of the needy of society. It was run through the temple. But it had become like a public religion because you had to sign up and you had to pay in to it. The, the power of choice, the liberty of choice as to what you were going to pay in was greatly removed from the individual who were members. Somebody would come along and compel your offering and collect it. And, of course, money flowed in to the temple and benefits flowed back out to the people. And this was the Corbin of the Pharisees. This was the sacrifice of the Pharisees. This was the social safety net of the Pharisees. This was a welfare state, a one-purse socialist civil system set up by Herod and the Pharisees, mixing the religion with the state, where Herod now became a mighty provider instead of the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't work simply through rulers who exercise authority. Except to punish the wicked. And who are the wicked? That's the ones who covet their neighbor's goods. Because he's going to help the citizens of Judea covet their neighbor's good through his authority by forcing the offerings of the people. Which if we go back to Samuel, this is why King Saul lost his throne. Because he did a foolish thing. What did he do? He forced a sacrifice to fund his army. And this is what Herod was doing with his Corbin. Forcing a sacrifice to fund the support of the people. He was going from 
pure religion, which is the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man by the individuals in every household coming together, creating those social bonds that only come with fervent charity in a community. And he was replacing them with the legal bonds which usually required some sort of an agreement. You have to sign something somewhere or somebody signs for you so that you can get this legal charity provided by the civil state. Now, if you get that, and we've already gone through this many, many times, we can go back to Roman historians like Polybius or Plutarch, which was a little bit more at at the time of Christ, who said the greatest destroyers of liberty is those who give gifts, gratuities, and benefits. Or Polybius who said, when the people become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, they institute the rule of force and violence. In other words, they force the contributions of their neighbor. This is no longer loving your neighbor. This is a violation of those two commandments of God. God gave you the right to choose to take care of your neighbor or not. You don't have to take care of your neighbor. But if you don't, your neighbor won't take care of you. But I can tell you, and you can look out your window yourself, you will find plenty of neighbors who you can help and you can take care of. And they will never come and help you. You'll find more of those today than you would 50 years ago. Or 100 years ago. You might have to go back 100 years ago. <laughs> but, but that's because you've already altered your society. And now you think you're a believer. You think you believe in Jesus. You think you love your neighbor. But you're still coveting your neighbor's goods and you're willing to hire a government to go to your neighbor's house and force your neighbor to contribute to what you want for free. That's what you're doing. You're forcing your neighbor to contribute to what you want for free. And there's a lot of things you want for free. We go down a whole long list. But that's a covetous practice. Paul talks about those who covet that you should turn away. Paul talks about those that covet that uh, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Paul talks about idolatry being a covetous practice. Because that's what they were doing in the pagan temples. They were providing a social safety net through compelled offerings. But Jesus was providing a social safety net through charity. If you want to be a real Christian, that's your goal. Is a social safety net based on charity, not entitlements. Because, like Polybius went on to say, that when people become accustomed to living at the expense of others and depending for their livelihood on the property of others, they will institute this rule of force. And they will degenerate into perfect savages. So I saw I saw a post this early this morning from uh, 
some sort of Catholic church group or something that was showing how, you know, gay marriage. We took a turn down. Yeah, no, it's just about two people loving each other. No, it was about an agenda to change the way in which we look at the sexuality. But the problem wasn't gay marriage. That's a symptom of the problem. The problem was legal charity. And I'm not sure that a lot of the people that see the symptom want to deal with the problem. And we see this everywhere in medicine. They go to the doctor to get a medication that will help them with the symptoms. You know, uh, you know, they're overweight. They want to get their stomach sewed up or they want to, you know, take some drug that forces them to lose weight. They, they don't want to eat and feed the body. They want to feed the tongue. That they're trying to get fulfillment out of food. And they're eating all the wrong kinds of food and destroying their body. They're adulterating their body. They're doing that everywhere in America. That's why America is one of the most obese nations in the world. But we're doing the same thing with sexuality. We're doing the same thing with politics. We're trying to solve a social problem by electing a president. My God, how in the world is that going to help? That's not going to solve a social problem. And the reality is the social problem that you need to solve is in you. You you have to look in you. You're the problem. It's not It's not who your president is. It's what you think. And the way you think in your head and in your mind and in your heart. Somehow or other, you think you love your neighbor while you're sending men to your neighbor's house to force him to contribute to what you want. That's not love. Covetousness is not love. You don't elevate your neighbor if that is the system that you look to. And we'll get into more why that is so uh, later on. But let's uh, let's move along here because we've already uh, got into this. But the, the two things that we talked about in chapter 1, the genealogies of Christ. And you can go back, those recordings are up, you can go back and listen to them at Preparing You. Uh, and the other thing was the birth of Jesus Christ and, and Mary. And I added a link. Actually, I haven't added it yet, but I will add it. Oh, I think it actually is there. Uh, I had added a link to the Gospel of James, which talks a great deal about this. And the reason I, I added it in is not so much the, the talk about uh, the Virgin Mary and the birth of Jesus and all this stuff. And, and the Gospel of James is outside of what we refer to as the Bible. It's uh, extra-biblical uh, text. It, it, it was quoted by many of the early uh, church writers. Origen quotes it. Others quote it. And uh, it was not popular with Jerome and Eusebius, so it did not get into the final cut. Now, is it authentic? Is it inspired? Is everything in it true? I, I don't know. Uh, but it's it's interesting 
to read. And uh, and there's bits and pieces of information that were talked about by other historians back there in the very early centuries that will explain certain events that are going to be covered by Matthew that are often misinterpreted, in my opinion. I mean, it was common knowledge at one time, but now... If you go talk to most of the people who've read these different verses concerning like Zechariah, what John the Baptist was, why he was where he was, what what the, the Essene community is, most people read this in the Bible and they don't understand the history of it. They don't understand the context of it. And they can be more easily misled into thinking that they love Jesus while not following Jesus. They think they are a follower of Jesus when they are not doing what Jesus directed. They don't even know what he directed because they don't understand the context of what he states. You know, probably no more... I mean, I could give you dozens and and we will go over dozens and dozens of examples of this when he says, call no man on earth father. If you don't know that all the senators of Rome were called patri, father, which is the same word we see in the Greek text, the Latin word patri, call no man patri, it says, you you don't understand why he said it. And, And you actually have theologians today, ministers today, suggesting that, oh, well, they're talking about the Catholic Church. Well, they might be talking about the Catholic Church, but it didn't exist yet, so that's not why he said that. He's talking about what existed at the time he said it, so that the people that were listening could understand what he was saying. If you didn't understand that the Roman emperor was called the father of the nation, the Patronus, our father who art in Rome, who was sending... Food and grain shipments and bread to Jews in Judea. And and passing laws that the distribution, the rightly dividing of that bread in the community of Judea. If it fell on a Jewish holiday, the Jews could come on the next day. He passed a law that they could do that. Because the Jews, for the most part, loved Augustus Caesar. Because they loved legal charity. And they loved legal charity. And they were accustomed to legal charity by the state. They didn't care that the bread that Augustus was able to send them was financed by killing his opponents and killing the families of his opponents and stripping them of all their wealth. They didn't care that the money that bought the grain that he shipped to Judea was from the slave trade of Gauls and Germans and Teutons. They didn't care about that. They just, oh, free bread from Augustus Caesar, who was called the Son of God. And now Jesus comes along. They knew he was called the Son of God. But now Jesus comes along and they say, he is the Son of God. That's going to get us killed. The Romans are going to come and kill us if you say that. Don't say that, they would say. And they said it anyway. And eventually, when they got the baptism of Jesus Christ, they were kicked out of the system of social welfare, run through the temple, in Jerusalem and through all the synagogues, which were organized in ten families. 
all over the empire. They were kicked out of that system. If their name was in the rolls, it would be crossed out. And they would no longer be eligible for the benefits. They would have to take care of their own parents. They would have to take care of their own needy, their own widows, their own orphans. They would have to do it themselves now because the temple wasn't going to do it. But there was another temple that was not a stone temple built without hands, built of living stones that was able to provide a social safety net based on love for neighbor and the freedom of choice. That was Christianity. Not what we see today. But that was Christianity. So anyway, like I said, chapter 1, we talk about the birth. We talk about also, there were a lot of dreams going on (laughs) at that particular time. And and these dreams uh, would lead, you know, Joseph would go and the, the wise men would go and all this was going on because they were getting these dreams. And uh, then there would be visions. But anyway, let's get right into uh, Matthew 2. Starts out the visit of the wise men. Because we've mentioned the wise men now. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea and the days of Herod, the king, behold, there there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. So who are these wise men? And boy, there is speculation about that. And we could talk about it a great deal. Uh, you know, if we read in Luke 2, 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David. And then we also talk about Micah uh, 5, 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata. Though thou be little amongst the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, of old, from the everlasting. And in Luke 2, 11, uh, and then John 7, uh, 42, where they talk about this town of Bethlehem. Uh, Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem uh, where David was. So all this idea of Bethlehem, it was well known amongst a lot of people that the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. And and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem uh, with Mary for a reason. In order that these these things would be fulfilled for those people who need signs and wonders, but the greatest sign you need is to see people actually living by faith, hope, and charity instead of force, fear, and fealty, and pretending to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus while they are actually workers of iniquity, engaged in covetous practices. Compelling their neighbors to contribute to their welfare. Just amazing. What a strong delusion that people are under. 
But if you repent, you can join us on the network. You can organize yourselves. You have to do it yourselves into the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Seeking the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of righteousness. The righteousness of God, which is based on charity, not force or fear. Or bringing you back into the captivity of Egypt, where you owe a portion of your labor to the rulers of the land. Who will rightly divide the bread, or supposedly rightly divide the bread from house to house. I shared on Facebook, on my Facebook page, uh, a clip where a guy was pointing out that... Uh, the Pakistanis own a hotel in New York that is getting like $6,000 a month to take care of illegal immigrants in their hotel. Millions and millions of dollars a year. It was just more than any of you are getting on Social Security. You're not getting $6,000 a month on Social Security. Illegal immigrants are getting more than you are. <laughs> with tax dollars making you know the Pakistanis who own the hotel wealthy on tax dollars taking care of illegal immigrants you, you've lost it you've lost the battle already you're you're back in the bondage of Egypt you're back in the in the hand of Caesar you're under Nimrod's Babylon but you still think you believe in Jesus you need to repent. You need to think differently. And that's what we're going to show you. Saying, where is he, this is what the wise men are saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, you know, we've told stories before about Herod receiving a prophecy from Menahem, uh, which is not in the biblical text, not specifically in the biblical text, that the Messiah would come to his reign as king. He was told this when he had no prospects whatsoever of ever becoming the king in Judea. But, you know, he had lived in Rome, he had friends who lived in Rome, uh, and high up, and then he eventually got this appointment. Literally an appointment to become this king in Judea. But he was told that the Messiah would come during his reign. He was, like Saul, a little crazy with power. Whenever you give more and more power to your government to solve problems you should be solving for yourself by repentance, this is what's going your, your leaders are going to go crazy and do crazy things. So when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now he's doing this publicly. And they said unto him, Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophets. That it, it's it's going to be in, in Bethlehem of Judea. And thou, Bethlehem, in the hands of, of Judah, art not the least amongst the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor. And they actually have the, a word that they translate into governor. That shall rule 
my people Israel. Well, if they're talking about Jesus, how does Jesus rule the people? Jesus is returning every man to his family and every man to his possessions. So what he's doing is he's giving every man the power of choice. That's where, that's where Christianity was taking. Now the modern church, that's not where everybody's at. The modern church, they don't have the power of choice. Somebody else, there's gonna be another governor. You know, if you're in California, it's Newsom. He's gonna decide what you get to keep and what you give to, gonna give. And he's gonna give to those illegal immigrants and he's gonna give to, you know, drug addicts on the street and he's gonna weaken the poor with his charity. Which is why he has so many poor. He's just weakening and weakening. Because that's, that's the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Is they have to, in a time of affluence, and in California was affluence, they have to weaken the poor. And that's what they've done. You know, that's what LBJ was doing with his great society. He wanted to weaken the black community and make them dependent upon the Democrats. They were all Republicans before. Because Lincoln was a Republican. And everybody knew the Democrats were the KKK, and the KKK were Democrats. So most black people were Republicans. But in one generation, they moved from being Republicans to being Democrats. Because the Democrats provided them gifts, gratuities, and benefits. And that's what's destroying the black community. And they need to repent, but we need to do it too. Now, I'm not telling you to become a Republican or a Democrat because your solution is to repent and start doing for yourselves what you should have been doing all along. But we'll have to talk about this when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be... Looking again at this Matthew, we're going to backtrack just a few verses so that we can take a look at uh, what what was said in verse 6. And it says, And thou, Bethlehem, in the hands of Judah, art not the least amongst the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now, if you, if you go to the actual Greek of this text in Matthew 2, 6, we see different words there. You know, like rule is usually like arche, some sort of word that would mean ruler. You know, even, even, even the word governor would be this, this word that would be uh, like a ruler, arche. But that's not necessarily what we're seeing in, in this text. We actually see Hegomai in, in this text. And poimeno uh, is another Greek word that we see that actually means feed. He's going to feed the people. And uh, and so this, this word Hegomai has to do with lead the people. Not rule the people. Show them the way. That's what they're saying there. But if you read this translation, it's talking about a governor. But no, it's it's not a governor. It, it's it's uh, someone who is going to lead. Actually, empomene, which can mean feed, it literally would be translated a shepherd. Because, I mean, if he's, this is... 
the highest son of David, he's going to leadeth them beside the still waters and maketh them to lie down in green pastures. He's not going to rule over them with an iron rod. Now, he might have an iron rod, but that's for the wolves and the coyotes and the bobcats and the mountain lions. No. Jesus was coming to be a shepherd, a different kind of ruler, a different kind of government. It wasn't a government where you get to covet your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority. He forbid that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and really also in John. And all the apostles were forbidding them. The covetous practices of desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor. No, no. It's a different kind of ruler. Different kind of way. And this is the way of Christ. And you wouldn't know it by reading that. Because people think, well, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule. He's going to make everything right. No, what he's going to do is say, get ye from me, ye workers of iniquity, because you have been living by covetous practices, pretending to be followers of Christ, doing great things in the name of Christ, with a very devout look and nice buildings and suits and ties, or maybe not suits and ties, maybe maybe you got guitar music in your church and you just wear casual clothes, but do you have a daily ministration that takes care of all the social welfare of the members of your church through charity? Or do you send some of the members or all of the members of the church that you are a minister of to men who exercise authority one over the the other to take away from their neighbors so that they can have somebody take care of their parents, somebody take care of their children, somebody teach their children. You wonder why they're... You've lost control of your schools. They're not your schools. Because you've already abandoned the ways of Christ. Even when Samuel 8, when the people said they wanted to have a king. You know, I don't know how many people are praying for their particular presidential candidate to become the president, to save the day, to be their salvation. But when they wanted to have a king in Israel, God said, they want to have a king. They want to have a president. They want to have a prime minister. They want to have a commander-in-chief. Because that's actually what Saul was at first, was just the commander-in-chief. They want to have that. Because they've already turned away from me that I should not reign over them. If you can't see that legal charity and the system of social welfare based on men who exercise authority is in opposition to Christ. You have serious repentance. Need for serious repentance. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Just that word worship. We should look at the word worship. Because it tells you how they worshiped Jesus when they finally do. 
when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, that always bothered me. You know, I, I was once driving home late at night. And I got a call from somebody I almost never get a call from. I haven't got a call from them in years and years. And it's someone who has some serious emotional and mental problems. Great, nice person, but has a lot of uh, dysphoria. <laughs> Let's put it that way. About seeing certain And they were absolutely convinced, no alcohol involved, that the moon was following. They were out on the same road, driving along. And they could see the moon. It was coming up in the east, and it was a full moon. And they were sure the moon was following, because they could, as they were traveling along, the moon was following them. And I'm, I'm looking out my window, and I realize, what road are you on? <laughs> and they were, they were miles and miles ahead of me. Uh, and I was trying to convince them patiently as possible that, well, no, it just looks like that because of the distance of the moon and, the, you know, I'm trying to go through the science of it without getting too complicated. That, uh, yeah, that it's not, a, if you stop, the moon will stop. Yes, I know, it stopped. Because <laughs> she's already done. And, and I'm, I'm trying to convince her that, no, no, it's just an optical illusion because of the distances and, but uh, back to the star. The star moved over to Bethlehem? I don't think they're looking at a star. I think they're looking at something and they call it a star. But that's what I see. Because it doesn't really move. <laughs> and there's a lot of talk about seeing the star in the east. And of course, even the word star can be a symbol of something. I mean, in in more ways than once. I mean, if you look throughout the Old Testament and the old languages, from Sanskrit to Hebrew, that stars are symbols of things besides just stars. And of course, uh, the, the the common word for stars also meant planets and anything that would be floating in the sky. And because the planets don't follow the stars, they have their own. That's how they know they were planets. Is they they would say, well, well, that's that star's doing its own thing. It's not going. All the stars are moving across the the sky, but that thing is like independent of that moving of the dome of stars that we see above our heads. So what what is that? <laughs> so anyway, these guys are following the stars. So when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Because did they suddenly see it? So anyway. In verse 11, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. This is worship. They're funding his kingdom. They're supporting his kingdom. They open their treasures. This is, and they're giving of their treasures 
to the king. And Jesus doesn't need all this stuff, but maybe they're going to need it on the trip they're about to take. And being warned of God in a dream, another dream, that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So they didn't go back to Herod. They didn't tell Herod. And in verse 13 it says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, we, we can see in Exodus 4.22 that thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord Israel is my son, even my firstborn. In Numbers 24.8 we see God brought him out, for uh, brought him forth out of Egypt. He hath as it were the strength of a unicorn. Which of course a unicorn, there were unicorns, there are unicorns. And there are still unicorns. You can go down to the zoo and see a unicorn. It's called a rhinoceros. (laughs) A unicorn is a one-horned rhinoceros. Two-horned rhinoceros is not a unicorn. It's got two horns. So anyway, he shall... And so the strength of a unicorn. So now that makes a little bit of sense. So yeah. And so anybody who says, oh, the Bible believes in unicorns. Well, yeah. Anybody who's been and seen a rhinoceros, believes in unicorns. He shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones, pierce them through with his arrows. Okay, that could take a lot of unpacking. How is he going to eat up his nation? Because of a consuming fire, which we'll talk about. What is a consuming fire? What is hell fire? Hellfire is just a Greek way of saying a consuming fire that consumes. What is that? You're going to need to know that. (laughs) Because we're up against a lot of bad guys. Because there's a lot of people under this strong delusion. And some of you will repent and say, oh my gosh. Of course, this is why maybe it will come to you in a dream. Maybe it will come to you in a vision. Maybe you'll just start realizing that legal charity degenerates the people. I mean, we have been talking about this for years and years, and we've been coming in and out of the Gospels, but going to the Old Testament, going to the other books of the New Testament, bringing all these pieces of the puzzle together. And so, the reality is, is from the very beginning, Nimrod's legal charity... Sodom's legal charity, Cain's legal charity, Sumer's legal charity, degenerated the people. And, and then food wasn't enough. And, and sex wasn't enough. 
and, and they the food they ate destroyed them, and, and they they perverted the natural use of sex, and they ended up with a birth rate that was lower than survival, and they they became confused about their gender because they departed from the ways of nature. They departed from the the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. And when you depart from the kingdom of God, guess what? You get less generations. Until the, until the whole... I mean, they've already done movies about the whole world becoming sterile. And, and, and no babies being born almost anywhere. Are, are we coming up on a time like that? Uh, we certainly come up on the time of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and people espouse their narratives and they have no idea what they're talking about. In Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So yeah, this is this, is this out of Egypt idea of, you know, coming out of Egypt. And this is, you know, so Joseph departed. Well, let's go back to, uh, they fled to Egypt. But then Herod, in verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, in other words, they didn't come back, they left, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the, the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And, and now some people will tell you that the wise men didn't come till, you know, a year after the baby was born. It wasn't that night that he was born. But, you know, I, it doesn't, it's, it's not really important. I'm just noting that there are different versions of the, the same story. The, probably the most important verse that we read was when we went back and looked at verse 6. That he wasn't a governor, Archon, who was going to rule over the people. But he was going to shepherd the people as a leader. Because he was, you know, and, but in order to do that, the people have to gather according to the way that Christ said to gather. Which he, he, he clearly told them to gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. He clearly told them to love one another, to not covet. He clearly said all that. Not to go to men who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority one over the other. And But if you don't hear that, if you think, no, I believe in Jesus, and I'm saved by grace, and I don't have to take care of my neighbor, uh, and, and it's fine to go to the government that exercises authority, that borrows money against the future, curses my children, it makes me a human resource back in the bondage of Egypt where I am nothing but merchandise. It's, it, that's okay. As long as I believe in Jesus. Well, you're under a strong delusion. Then you need, you have need of repentance. And you need to turn around. And, and your preachers need to repent too. And they need to turn around because time is running out. Because that's not, that's not the way of Christ. If you were seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you'd be going in a completely different way. So when he, he, uh, 
he goes out and he, he wants all these children to be executed and uh, destroyed. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jer- um, Jeremiah the prophet saying, In Ramah has their voice heard lamentations and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. The children are gone. And uh, as Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, Thus saith the Lord, the voice was heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. And of course, the reason he's quoting this, he's writing to Jews. They're familiar with this story. And he understands what that's going on. But in verse 19, But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in the dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, again, a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. And they, uh, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he rose and he took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. So now he's going into Galilee. And came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, that's the last verse in this chapter, but it's full of misinformation. Not because the Bible is giving you misinformation, but because of information you don't already have in your head to put things together. The word city there, is is the word polis. And, and this word polis doesn't have to be an actual city that you actually live in. It, it can be, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a gathering of people that are dependent upon one another, providing all of the benefits of a city, but through a different means. And, uh, you know, we have more on this page about this and we can probably get into it, uh, in the next half. But, uh, the archaeological record, the best I have seen so far, doesn't show the existence of a city by the name of Nazareth at that particular time, at, at that particular point in history in Judah. And, and you should find some, there were censuses and there were all kinds of writings, but maybe they've missed it. But there doesn't seem to be any Nazareth specifically to speak of at that particular time. Now, the people will debate that and that's fine. But there was a group called Nazareans that were Essenes. And they were in every village. And all over Galilee, all over the Roman Empire. 
And, and they didn't call themselves Essenes at the time. That was a name put on them later by people like Josephus and some of the Roman, other Roman writers. But uh, nobody even knows where the word Essenes comes from. I mean, there's like 60 different speculations on the subject. But I'm going to ask, where was Jesus' cousin? He's like two years old. Is is somebody trying to kill him? Where's he hiding during this time? They don't say he went to Egypt. Well, actually, if you go back to that Gospel of Thomas that I mentioned in, you know, I'll probably put a link on the page here, but uh, I have a link on uh, Gospel of James. Excuse me. That Gospel of James. There is a Gospel of Thomas, but the Gospel of James talks about this. And Matthew will mention some of the characters that are in which is John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, and Elizabeth. That um, Elizabeth had to flee with the child. Zechariah was questioned supposedly by Herod's soldiers looking for his child. Because they knew there was something special about John the Baptist to begin with because he was born to Elizabeth who was past the age of carrying children. Just like Sarah was past the age of carrying children. But she had another child. And and her husband couldn't even figure out how in the world is she having a child. But there's John the Baptist. And Elizabeth has supposedly fled to the desert with John the Baptist. And he's being questioned by soldiers. He's telling the soldiers he doesn't know where he is. The soldiers go away. They come back and question him again. And... Some people interpret the text, and this is why I put the text on our website, as the soldiers killed Zechariah. But that's not what it appears to say in the actual text. What it appears to say in the actual text is that the soldiers came and questioned him. And they came back and questioned him. But they didn't get anywhere with it. But that night... Sometime during the night, when the soldiers weren't there, and he was inside the temple, inside the sanctuary of the temple, he was murdered. Now, I, I can show you where they, you know, the Greek Orthodox say he's buried and everything. Except they don't say they found his body when they finally had the courage to go in there. So somebody had to go in there. He wasn't out in the court. This is down in the sacred area. And when he went in there, they said they found congealed blood. They didn't say they found a body. They found congealed blood, which will play into Matthew later when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. But we'll have to look at that later when we come back to the keys of the kingdom. Welcome back. So, uh, we could have probably done this uh, next part at the beginning, but I'm, I'm putting it at the back because it has a tendency to help you go back and look at what we just talked about 
uh, that there was this long line of kings. Herod's title as king of Judea had been approved by the Roman Senate in 40 B.C. By Herod's death of around 4 or 5 B.C., Archelaus ended up sitting in what they say, the room. That's the way Matthew writes it. In the room of his father, in the place of his father, Herod. But he really wasn't the king. And you can even find this on Wikipedia probably, that he was some sort of authority in the area, kind of a place marker, but there was no king sitting on the throne. And this was a huge question at that time. This would be in the headlines of the paper. Who, you know, who's the rightful king? Now, there was somebody picked to be the Tetrarch in Jerusalem. Uh, but Herod had executed him. It was Herod's own son. But Archelaus was, you know, another son too, but it was by uh, Malthus, who was a Samaritan woman. And so there was a huge conflict between Samaritans and and the, the Christians. Uh, well, not the Christians, uh, the, the Jews. A huge conflict between them. Which is why Jesus is bringing up Samaritans and the Samaritan woman and the good Samaritan and all this stuff. Because the Samaritans were in some ways a little bit closer to what the kingdom was really all about in some ways, but it's it's a diverse community, so they're not always. The Essenes were probably the closest, generally speaking, but they were not a homogeneous group either. So anyway, the point is is that the kingdom of Judea was divided into three parts, and there were all these different people, Archelaus, and then Herod Antipas, and then Philip was in another area. Uh, that Philip has mentioned in Luke 3 is the Tetrarch. And they were ruling this area, but there was no king. And there was never, ever a king on the throne in uh, Judea, except for Jesus Christ, uh, at least until around 1099. Uh, the physical capital of Jerusalem had no king. Uh, that could claim any illegitimacy at all since Jesus Christ. I mean, Herod uh, Agrippa tried to claim the throne, but then, you know, that's when his, in, in Acts 12, and you know, his belly ruptures open, and he says he sinned against God and man. And so, Jesus Christ was king of a kingdom, but it was a different kind of kingdom. It wasn't like a regular governor, Archon. It was an, it uh, was uh an anarchist throne <laughs> without an anarchist it was because he was returning you to the government of the people for the people and by the people but you had to take back your responsibilities if you wanted your rights and this he was a shepherd he's leading you in the way and the way is not legal charity it's not forcing your neighbor to contribute to your welfare or take care of your parents or teach your children or pay your student loans or to make things right or even protect you from foreign invasion because they're not going to do that. They're going to fail at that. America will be invaded by foreigners. There will be collapse of economies, all this kind of stuff. It's all going to take place again. If you, If you're moved by fear... You're not going to get it. You have to be moved by love. And to be moved by love, you have to reinstitute that which creates the social bonds of a free society, which is what Christ was telling you to do. He said, fear not. 
He doesn't want you to be afraid. But he is the king of a real government. And you're not in it. And if you still have to go to the governments of the Gentiles, or if you haven't become the government of God's righteousness, operating by faith, hope, and charity, and taking care of more than just your needs. You know, because remember when we were reading Ecclesiastes, if you just if you just accumulate your stuff, just take care of your needs, you don't depend on the governments of the world, you're still covetous. Because you covet your own. You have to be willing to worship Christ like the Magi. Support Him. You know, like I said, there wasn't any king in Jerusalem. Now, the Crusades brought a king to Jerusalem. Godfrey of Debulion. And, uh, but that's another whole story. I mean, the Debulions ended up producing King Henry VIII's wives, Anne Boleyn. And Boleyn is from that word Debulion. But in England, they don't say it that way. They say Boleyn. But uh, the reality is, is that, and and because of that, everybody wanted to be married to, you know, and have offspring with Anne Boleyn because she was a part of this 1099 King of Jerusalem. Prince Charles still talks about this today. And that's why he goes to Jerusalem. That's why they're doing, I mean, the Great Reset. And they're, they're still operating by these ideas. But they don't understand it any better than the average guy on the street. But you don't need to understand all those details. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to love your one another as yourself. You need to take care of one another as yourself. That's what you need to do. So, we talked about the Magi, and, and, uh, appears in Jeremiah 39, 3, 13, in the name of Rab Mag, uh, the chief of the Magi, uh, Tacitus and Suetonius, who have articles now on, tell us, uh, 60 or 70 years later had been for a long time very widely diffused everywhere throughout the east men were looking for the advent of this great king who was to rise from amongst the Jews the expectation partly rested on such messianic prophecies of Isaiah uh, 9 and 11 uh, partly later uh, predictions by Daniel 7 everybody tries to put all this together and figure all this out and figure timelines and uh, Herodotus um, speaks of them as a priestly castle of the Meds. You know, these wise men off in the distance. Um, but people knew that uh, even Herod Antipas' mother went to Bethlehem to give birth to her son, Herod Antipas, because she wanted him to be the Messiah. So, yeah, this was all... Everybody was, this is the talk of the town. Everybody knew. Everybody, you know, in, in our article on the kingdom of God, so that people get a kind of an idea of what we're looking for, the kingdom of God <laughs> and his righteousness. That's here today. It's at hand. It's within our reach. You just have to repent and seek it. And everybody knew. Shepherds knew it. You know, the wise men knew it. Herod knew it. Herod, Herod Antipas' mother knew that the Messiah was coming. 
Herod was told that the Messiah would come during his reign, but then he didn't want to give it up. Same with Saul. When he was told that he was going to lose his kingdom. You know, he was going to cling to it. Like he clings to the coats of Samuel. And was even willing to kill David to keep his kingdom. Your leaders are no different. They will destroy everything. You've given them too much power. Because you haven't taken your responsibilities back. What are your responsibilities? To love your neighbor as yourself. That's what your responsibilities are. To love God who is a giver of life, not a taker. It's a different kind of love. You love your benefits. You love your welfare. You love your government that gets you all these things. But that's what you, I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. That's not love. That's desire. And it brings with it covetous practices. Love is when you give your life for your wife, for your children, for your, uh, for your husband, for your neighbor. That's the love of God. And when you have that love, God can enter into you. And then you will have dreams. Your old men will have dreams. And your young men will have visions. And you will know what to do. But the basics are simple. Repent. And seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's what you got to do. That's where you got to go. Uh, there's a reference to when they were coming to the house. And uh, the word there that we see come into the house is this uh, oika, uh, habitation, edifice, dwelling. But it's the same, it's the same sense in the Greek as the word polis. Polis can be translated city. But the Nazareans were everywhere. And, you know, although they had some villages out in, usually in the desert in some place, I didn't talk much about, uh, what the Gospel of James talks about where Elizabeth is fleeing with this baby. And she may be alone, she may be with somebody else, but she's definitely in a desperate need. She's not a young woman, she's carrying a baby, she's no, they're hunting her. And, uh, it says, the mountain cleft open. Now, that, that could be simply a metaphor, it could mean a lot of different things, and there's a lot of things written about the fact that there were people living in a mountain, hidden away uh, in, in the desert. And, and this may have been partly where some of these guys came from that were, you know, when Jesus is going up in the cloud and there's these guys dressed in white standing nearby and talk to the apostles. And nobody ever tells us, who are those guys? Where did they come from? <laughs> People say, well, they were just angels. You know, well, it doesn't really say that. I mean, they were messengers, okay. But there was a lot going on there that was kept secret. They didn't write about. They didn't tell people about. Because you can't tell every. You have to be careful what you tell. But ultimately, you want to be dwelling in the kingdom of God. And you know you're not dwelling in the kingdom of God if you're depending upon men who exercise authority, who take away from your neighbors, 
to take away from the, your, the future of your children by borrowing against the future to provide you with benefits. You know, that is not the kingdom of God. That is not the polis on a hill. That's what they talk about. The kingdom of God being a polis on a hill. A polis in a high place. A polis, a city, a, 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 a civil government where the power of the citizen is in the hands of every individual. It's not in the hands of the collective. It's not a democracy. It's a libera res publica. A libera res publica. Now, I have, I've expanded our article on libera res publica. You can go and read that and study that. And it'll give you a clear idea of what an actual republic is. Because the United States is not a republic. It's never been a republic. It's a democracy within a republic. And a republic is where people are free from things public. It's where the citizens are not subject to the administration of government. Everybody is now. Everybody is bound in the unrighteous mammon, dependent upon the unrighteous mammon, but now you you need to be friends with the unrighteous mammon while you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because the unrighteous mammon, the entrusted wealth that you have done, you put all your wealth in, in I mean, you don't have any wealth in your pocket anymore. Even those people who, I, I heard that Costco is selling gold now. <laughs> so Costco is selling all this gold and just to their members or something. I, I just heard this. I don't have the details. And they're selling it for a pretty high price. And it's sold out just like overnight and everything. And people think they all have that gold. But what they don't have is the righteousness of God. And, and that's more valuable than gold. And, and if you seek the righteousness of God, all the gold in the world uh, will come to you if you need it. If you don't need it, it won't come to you. <laughs> so, Because that is going to be key. That is going to be the solution. Besides all those people who bought that gold, they only have legal title to it. And it can all be taken away from them. And it doesn't get them any closer to the protection of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is is will include that which is seen and that which is unseen. It will include the revelations that come with seeking the righteousness of God. Uh, what Matthias Desmond calls um, uh, resonance. He, he, he uses the word resonance. Of course, English is his second language. But uh, I use the word revelation. Everybody needs the revelation of God. You need to know when to go to Egypt <laughs> and when to come back. You need to know, well, I'm, I'm not going to go to Bethlehem. I'm going to go this other way. And uh, the, there's a great deal of evidence that that Nazareth was a community of Essenes, not an actual town. And uh, there's also a lot of evidence that Jesus traveled a lot during those that period from when he was an infant. I mean, he already had gone to Egypt and back again. There's stories of Joseph in Egypt. And he wasn't just a poor carpenter. Of course, he had a lot of gold and myrrh and incense to take with him <laughs> to pay his way. But supposedly he was a stone contractor. He actually worked in stone, not wood. 
and there's nothing in the Bible that says it was wood. And you don't have to believe it either way, but the reality is, is the Bible does say that Jesus was rich and he made himself poor. They want you to believe that he was poor and you should be happy being poor because Jesus was poor like you. No, Jesus was rich, but he made himself poor because he was returning every man to his family and every man to his possession. And he would not live in the room of Herod. He was not... Temptations are coming. We'll cover that when we get to the the area about temptations. But uh, no. No, it's a, a different kingdom. And he was a different kind of governor. And that's probably... Something I, I'll put in more notes on the page concerning the governor. Uh, and my my son had to meet with the governor of the state. Uh, I think sometime this week he's going to meet her again. But uh, and and uh, she probably doesn't like him. <laughs> but <laughs> he's going to meet with her just the same. But uh, the fact is, is there are people out there who who can awaken to this in whatever role they are, whatever place they are. Like I say, everybody's going to be free someday. But everybody's not going to survive freedom. And what we want to do, if we love our neighbor, we want to see as many people, worthy people, at least by grace worthy, that are seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we want to see them survive the days ahead. But it isn't going to be done by uh, a lot of the means that they they would take, you know, survivalist means and and piling up this and piling up that. It's it's going to be done by seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all else will be provided unto you. But you have to seek that kingdom as if your very soul. Depended upon it. But in order for you to do that, you're going to have to repent. Think differently. And so that's what we're going to hopefully do as we go through the different chapters of uh, Matthew. Is we're going to hope that you start thinking differently about the gospel of the kingdom and the righteousness of God. And of course we're going to start right away uh, in Matthew 3. We can take a quick look at it. Uh, John the Baptist prepares the way. So John, raised by his scenes in the desert, may be connected to some cleft in the mountain <laughs> that, that Elizabeth took shelter in, at least according to that Gospel of James, uh, where he got special teachings and special information. And uh, But he was also a special guy to begin with. I mean, he recognized Jesus when he was still in the womb. No, there is a spiritual reality, a spiritual resonance that we need to get closer to. And the way you get closer to that is forgiving and giving and seeking the way of Christ. So in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, think differently. That's what repent means. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, 
saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Which is partly why we created the website, Preparing You, which has a lot of the Bible studies, a lot of the recordings that we have in there, is that we want you to prepare the way. But you have to know what the way is. And that that words there on the page actually will open up an article called The Way. The Way of Christ. It's not the way of the governor. It's the way of the shepherd. Doesn't mean that we can't meet with the governor. (laughs) We may meet with the governor. But it's the way of the shepherd. It's the way of righteousness. It's the way of the Lord. And the modern churches haven't been teaching you that. But it was predicted that they wouldn't be teaching you that. But it also predicted that many of you would start to repent. Uh, there's a link up there to Kingdom of Heaven. To another article on that. Matthew is the only one who uses the phrase Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, and it is clearly, if you read every place that it appears, and we have an article, Kingdom of Heaven, Kingdom of God, it, it's the same thing. It's just different words to describe the same thing. The Kingdom of God is the Kingdom of Heaven. Now, the interesting thing about the kingdom of heaven is according to Greek scholars today, some of the top Greek scholars in the world, the Greek scholars, not religionists, but Greek scholars, the word that they translate heaven, uh, you know, into the English word heaven, is best translated into world. It says, repent, repent ye, for the kingdom of the world is at hand. Jesus was preaching a new world order. <laughs> they're preaching a new world order today but it's actually the old world order of Nimrod and Cain and Pharaoh and Caesar that makes men merchandise and slaves the kingdom of the world preached by Jesus Christ sets the captive free but the captive has to be the sheep of Christ who hear his voice who said don't covet don't go to men who exercise authority one over the other and call themselves benefactors. Don't go to the fathers of the earth. Don't don't reject the ways of God for the ways of men and elect your your prime ministers, your presidents, because they are not your salvation. Now, I'm not saying you can't vote. I'm not saying you can't be politically active, but you don't want to take away from the real salvation that Christ offers you which is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the new world order of Christ, which is the original order of God, where every man is king in his own castle, but comes together loving his neighbor as much as he loves his own freedom and his own liberty. He's not hiding out in the woods in a bunker, but he's laying down his life daily for his fellow man. He gets to decide how to do that, but if you want to decide how to do that right, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. But that's something that we all must seek. And until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, 
books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.